So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter. Our focus this morning is on verse 24. However, we're going to back up and start in verse 20 and read all the way through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heavens, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And may the Lord truly bless the reading of this word and its meaning to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to truly illuminate us to its meaning. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, as we um, make our way through what we call the Beatitudes and now these four woes, we ask that you would bless our understanding. And, and, and especially each and every one of us who calls ourselves, call ourselves yours, that we, we recognize who you're speaking to when you say this, <laughs> that your eyes are on your disciples. And that we're your disciples, there is a very poignant lesson for us here and as in the woes as well as in the blessings. So we pray that you will bring it home to us, and especially not just to us, but to those who might be outside the church, those who might be listening, those who you might be pulling out of darkness at this very moment, that they would understand that there is a flip side to the gospel and that it's the greatest and the best news that anyone's ever heard. But if it's rejected, it's the worst news that anyone has ever heard. And we pray that you will bring that out this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First of all, let me apologize. Um, if you are uh, one that follows along in your bulletin and kind of watches the outline as you go, or if you're one of the few people who actually read my notes that I publish on Friday, you're going to find this morning's message is considerably different than that that was published. I do this often. Um, I bite off more than I can chew, and I certainly did so this week. Um, and I was just going to run through all four of these woes together, um, but uh, I really feel that the, the Holy Spirit, as I prepared for it, just really slowed me down and say, no, this, this is just, just as vital a part of the gospel as the, all the good stuff that we talked about over the last several weeks. And we need to make sure that people are fully aware of these woes. Now, um, the reason I read all of these verses is because I wanted you to have the blessed, the blessings, the beatitudes in mind as we now go into these woes. Because, as I said, there's two sides to the gospel. There's a flip side. And when we talk about the gospel in this way, we quite often talk about the weal and the woe of the gospel. Weal is a word we don't use too much anymore. It really just means blessed, uh, and very similar to the blesseds of the Beatitudes, the Greek word makarios that is underneath that. Very, very similar in that sense. And we're going to define these woes as we go along. But 
this is precisely why there are so few exponential, uh, uh, expositional preachers. I mean, every preacher enjoys having people feel good when they finish the, the, the sermon. And last week we had an uplifting sermon, and believe it or not, quite a few people actually said, whoa, I really enjoyed that. And, and I would prefer to hear that every week, but if I did, I wouldn't be true to the gospel. I wouldn't be true to the words, because Jesus is the one who says this. When when he presents the gospel, he doesn't just present it in a good sense. He doesn't just present the fluff. He doesn't just present that everything is going to be great. He turns it right around and he gives you the woes. And he really wants you to understand that there is condemnation, that there is damnation, that there are serious consequences to those who reject the gospel. And if I'm going to be faithful to the word, I've I've got to preach that. So... Um, I, I, I don't think you're going to leave this morning quite as uplifted as you were last week, but I hope you leave convicted because these woes are not, not only important just for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, but also for those who do, as we will see as we make our way through this. So let me remind you of these four Beatitudes that we, we have already studied. First of all, the word blessed, as I said, the Greek word underneath, makarios, is a state of being word. It doesn't talk about these are attitudes that we need to aspire to, but rather that these are states of being. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you who are poor. Now, we obviously know that he doesn't mean, doesn't mean that in a material or a physical sense. Now, we are going to talk a lot about the material and physical sense of being rich this morning. And so there's an aspect of that in there, but really the important part of this is the spiritual sense. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, blessed are you if you were poor in spirit, if you are spiritually bankrupt. And what is so important is that you know it. That you're a beggar and you realize that the kind of poverty that you experience spiritually is a poverty that you cannot possibly pull yourself out of. So therefore, the great blessing of being poor in the spiritual sense is knowing that you need a Savior. And so you turn towards Jesus as your Savior. And by the same token, when we get to the woe this morning, it is a curse. It is a woe to think you don't need a Savior because you can save yourself. And so that's kind of the foundation that all of these are in. They're spiritual. We talked about what it meant to hunger, to hunger not after food, although that's the analogy that's being used, but rather to hunger after God, to hunger after the things of God, to hunger after righteousness, reconciliation, relationship, to hunger after the things that only God can provide. And then also to weep. And it's not weeping because your situation is bad. It is weeping because of your sin, because of the mortification you feel when you look at yourself. Now, we talked about those being actually evidences of salvation. You don't hunger after God unless you've been regenerated because no one seeks for God, not even one. And you don't cry or weep over your sins. You're not mortified over your sinfulness unless you've been regenerated. So that's where the blessing is. Blessed are you if you do these things. By the same token, we're going to say it's a curse if you don't. 
And then last week, we talked about the last one, the last beatitude, which is the most paradoxical of all of them. Blessed are you if everyone hates you. I mean, really, who wants to be hated like that? But Jesus says, no, it's a true blessing. In fact, if everyone hates you and they say terrible things about you and they spurn your name as evil and they revile you, they exclude you from whatever they're doing, then dance for joy, leap for joy, because he did this to the prophets as well. Now, we talked about last week about how difficult that was, how difficult it was to rejoice in the kind of face of that kind of persecution. But then we talked about that redeemed self, you know, that knew where you'd come from and knew where you were going all the time and never forgot it. And really, we needed to get in touch with that redeemed self because that's where the rejoicing goes. We tend to forget that. Well, we, we need to keep that in mind now this morning as we go through these woes. Now, I'm only going to take one today. Otherwise, we'd be here for two, maybe three hours. All right? So we're just going to take the first one. That's why I say we're going to concentrate on verse 24 that simply reads, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, I think that it is helpful, especially with this topic, By the way, if this topic, if this particular woe interests you more than the other woes, that's probably a red flag, okay? Um, If if you're concerned whether or not you're sinning with the kind of approach you take to money, then probably that's not the best place to be. But we'll bring that out as we go along. But let me tell you, first of all, what Jesus is not saying. Because as so many uh, statements in Scripture, this is one of those that is really grossly misunderstood. Jesus is not saying that it's a sin to be rich. He's not saying that it's a sin to have money. He's not saying that it's a sin to make money. He's not saying that it is a sin to inherit money or to invest and to reap money. He's not saying that at all. There is no sinfulness in money itself. So he's not mentioning that. That is not the focus that he's saying. Now, what he's talking about is when money becomes an idol, and we'll talk about that later, when money becomes the pursuit of your life. But what I intend to do with each one of these woes, and I'll do it again next week, is to show you scripturally that Jesus is not saying it is a sin in and of itself to have money or to be full or to be laughing or to be well thought of. And all you have to do is just look at some of the great men of scripture. I mean, Abraham was probably one of the most wealthy men as far as his time. Who's ever lived? I mean, Abraham was greatly blessed by God. He had massive holdings. And and Abraham was the one that God chose to make his covenant. In fact, in many ways, you and I are here this morning because of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And, And he's referred to as God's friend. So there's nothing wrong. God blessed Abraham with an amazing amount of wealth. Money in those days, it was animals, but still what was considered to be wealth. Think about Job. Job was one of the most wealthy men alive. I mean, he was hugely wealthy, and God took it all away from him. Not because of anything he did, but rather to, you know, you, you, you know what was going on in heaven. Satan was kind of goading God, and God is going to show him that Job is an upstanding man. Well, even when he had the money, God said, hey, consider my servant Job. He is blameless and righteous and upstanding and fears God. 
Well, so therefore, it wasn't a sin for him to have money. And then what did God do when all of that testing was over? He restored his wealth as a blessing. So it's, it's very clear that the, 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 the presence of wealth is, is, is not in and of itself a sin. Let's go to the New Testament. Think about someone like Joseph of Arimathea. Think about how important he is to God's redemptive plan. Because he's the one who took Jesus down from the cross and put him in his own tomb that no one had ever been in. Now, Isaiah 53 tells us what? Well, that he was buried with a rich man. Okay, so he's, he, he was told 700 years before it happens what's going to happen. But rather, they would have taken the body of Jesus down and thrown him in the valley of Gehenna out there in the open to rot and decompose. That wouldn't have worked in the gospel at all. So therefore, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, was hugely important and significant. It's not a sin. Nicodemus was probably rich. We know Zacchaeus was rich before he started giving it away. I mean, we have David the king. We have Solomon the king. I mean, we have a whole bunch of rich people who were also blessed people. So I think the point is well made. Jesus is not talking about wealth in and of itself being a sin. But it's when wealth becomes an idol. And, and, and that's where we're going to go to. Now, before we dive into this, every single one of these woes, by the way, underneath the woe is the discussion of idolatry. But let's first of all establish a couple, well, one word and one phrase. Let's talk about what the word woe means, because I did that with blessed. We talked about what that word meant first. And, and then I want to talk about the concept of idolatry just a wee bit before we get into this, because it really is something that is the, the theme that is underlying these woes. First of all, the word woe. Now, woe is what is known as an onomatopoeic word. There's a word for you to take home and chew on a little bit. Um, Onomatopoeic only means that it is a word that sounds like what it describes. Buzz is an onomatopoeic word. Murmur is an onomatopoeic word. It it sounds like what it talks about. Now, in English, uh, a little bit. I mean, the word, whoa, I mean, whoa is me. It has that feeling of foreboding, you know, that it just, the word sounds like someone saying, alas, you know, uh, or something like that. But it is in Greek that it is really the onomatopoeic word. It is the word, ooh, Ooh, I. I mean, you can just feel the angst in someone when they say that word. And, and, and even the Hebrew word that is that, that word in Greek translates in the Old Testament, you start tracing it down, is the word oi. And, and you may familiar you, you may recognize that in the more Yiddish statement, oy vey, right? Oh, woe is me, oy vey. Actually, both of those words mean the same way. Well, oy actually comes from a word. Uh, I'm just saying this for richness. I don't think it makes the word mean what it means. But oy comes from a word that actually means the howling of jackals in the night, or the wailing of a baby. So you can see that it is a word, and the, and the Greek word as well, that, that expresses. It, it expresses a feeling of grief. It expresses a feeling of, of woe, uh, of lamentation, of despair, of pain, of threat, or a warning. 
And it is really in that warning sense, that prophetic warning, that I think that we find the, the way that Jesus is using the word here. In fact, we don't have to go very far into the Old Testament to see. We read from Isaiah earlier a whole bunch of woes, didn't we? And we hear this word being used quite a bit by the prophets from Isaiah. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. From Jeremiah, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. From Ezekiel, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it. From Hosea, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. From Ecclesiastes, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. So it is used quite often in the Old Testament is also used by Jesus, especially, say, in Matthew 23. It it is used in the context of a prophetic warning that there is some sort of a doom that waits for those based on the situation that they are in. But in a New Testament sense, and brothers and sisters, is something I really... I I really want to make sure that we see. In a New Testament sense, you cannot separate the meaning of this word from a deep feeling of compassion. This is not Jesus saying, woe be unto you, and boy, are you going to get what you deserve. You know, goody, goody, you're going to suffer. There is a deep compassion underneath this. Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem for the last time, he wailed. Because people were rejecting him. You, you cannot say this word without a pathos, without some kind of an emotional, passionate plea that is included in this. It is not just a warning, but it is a plea that this is the state of things. And Jesus coming from heaven and knowing what's going to happen is saying this with no uncertain terms. Woe to you if you... Uh, are, are in this situation or if you're like this. So we need to realize that these are deeply compassionate statements and not just purely negative in the sense that, oh boy, I sure am glad that things are going to turn out bad for you. And the third thing I think we should know about this word is it's it, as, a, as a part of speech, it's what is known as an interjection. And, and that's just a sort of an exclamation of an emotional state. It's usually used in colloquial language more than formal language. But it, it, is, it is just an, an, an explosion of, of, of an expression of what's going on on the inside of you. However, in this particular sense, we need to keep it in the context of the wheels, In fact, every time we go through one of these woes, I'm going to put it into the context of the wheel. Because when we looked at the wheel, meaning the blessings, and we looked at that word makarios, we recognized that it was a word that meant a state of being. In a blessed state of being are these people. Well, it's kind of the same sense here that Jesus is using this, that there is a state of being, even though the word is not that kind of word, it sort of reflects that. It's almost used adjectivally to talk about the, the state of being that the person is in. Let me give you an example of that from Mark. Um, this is at, at the Last Supper, and, and Jesus was just announcing that he's going to be betrayed. And he says this, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, 
But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, that man, if he had not been born. And so that man is sitting right there. He's still there. He hadn't left yet. And, and so Jesus knows what he's going to do. So he's using the word to state a prophetic, almost eschatological state of cursedness. I don't even know if that's a word. But to, to be cursed in the sense that you're blessed. Again, these are opposites. And so Jesus is going to express the opposite situation here. So um, I, I know that that's kind of technical and maybe a little confusing to people. So let me just kind of whittle it down to size here as far as when we see what these woe means. Jesus is warning us. And he's especially warning, remember what the crowd Remember, the crowd consists of apostles, disciples, uh, the people, and the antagonist. That, and everyone is included in this. Jesus is warning us that certain states, a certain focus or foci in life are going to bring horrible consequences and that he knows what those consequences are and that we really should pay attention to what he says And it's a warning not only to the unbeliever, but to the believer that the kinds of things that constitute these woes are constantly trying to sneak into your life and into the back door of the church. And they are devastating when that happens. And so um, that's kind of the idea of the word woe. Now, the second idea before we actually jump into the woe is this idea of idolatry. And, and, and that what Jesus is talking about when he says, woe to you who are rich, it is when wealth begins to take the place of God. And you know that an idol is something that either takes the place of or gets in the way of your pursuit of God, your understanding of God, your worship of God, your love of God. It becomes something that is more important to you than God. Now, we're told very clearly, it's, this is not left up to conjecture, how God feels about idols. Okay, um, All we have to do is go back to the Ten Commandments. And, and we see that God feels very strongly about this. Let me just read, I know this is very familiar to you, but let me just read the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, you know that that doesn't just mean that, okay, I don't want to be third in line or second in line. I need to be first in line of all the gods you worship. No, that is not what he says at all. You won't have any gods, period, in my face, any place. I'm omnipresent and omniscient, God speaking, and therefore there's no place anywhere in your life, in your thinking, in anything that you do for an idol. And then he goes a little deeper in the second one when he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's pretty comprehensive, I would have to say, as far as how God feels about us putting idols. Now, I just want to 
kind of put it in a little bit of perspective. We don't have time to go into this. Most of you didn't show up last week for the after church, but we did talk about it. I blasted them with for about 45 minutes with this. And, you know, they were all looking at me like dogs at a fan when I was finished. Um, but there is a correlation between this, the Sermon on the Mount, and the bringing of the law at the time of Sinai. When Moses came down from with that law, Jesus is the new Moses. This Sinai is the mountain where the law was given. Well, Jesus coming down the mountain, that's sort of the new Sinai. And now Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is explaining, he's expositing the meaning of the law. For instance, now Matthew tells us this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, You have heard that it is said, Of those of old you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He explains that it means more than just physical murder. He does the same thing with adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is taking the commandments and saying it's far more than just the letter of the law. It is the spirit of the law, and indeed it is the implicit inverse of the law. What's the greatest law? Let's take that now and understand that it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself upon these two commandments hang everything, all the law and the prophets. So basically what Luke is doing now is taking those first two commandments and he is saying, okay, let's talk about some of these idols that you have in your life. And let's talk about the idols that are in direct correlation with the four blessings that I just gave you. I just gave you four blessings. And you know what Luke does? He compresses Matthew's um, view of it. And he gives you the ones that are most involved with God's plan of redemption. That's what Luke has been doing all through this book. He's been talking to us about what constitutes the good news of the kingdom of God. So when he brings the Beatitudes, he stays on just those that are really very specific about the gospel. Blessed are you if you are lost and you know it. Blessed are you if you are hungry for God because you are only hungry because he has has saved you. Blessed are you if you mourn over your sins. And blessed are you if everyone hates you because your reward in heaven is going to be great. That's the gospel in a nutshell that he's talking about. So now he's going to talk about idols that stand in the way and impede the gospel, but at the same time impede your relationship with God. And so that is the reason that he is bringing these up and and actually putting them right smack in our face and the fact that idolatry is so important here. So with that stated... Let's kind of move now into um, the, uh, the, the, the woe itself. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are rich. We've already talked about what that word woe means. But now let's talk about the kind of wealth that Jesus is actually talking about. Now, At the beginning of this, you remember I took you to Scripture and we took a look and we saw that wealth in and of itself is not um, um, sinful. But I I pulled a few examples out 
if you look at the view that Scripture has of wealth and the wealthy, it's decidedly pejorative, meaning it's decidedly negative. Okay, not a lot of good things to say about the very rich and the very wealthy and and the pursuit of money. In fact, I think that a a really good passage for us to look at is James, because James 5, if you want to turn there, if you're following along your Bible, because I'm going to read several verses from that. If you were part of our study of James, you know that James is very much an in-your-face teacher. He's very much like his half-brother Jesus when he writes this. But this is what he says about the wealthy. And this kind of captures the overall view of Scripture and wealth and the rich. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I mean, this guy doesn't mince words at all. Your riches have rotted your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver has corroded. Now, all three of those, it gives us some focus on the way the Bible sees wealth. All three of those are things that happen when you have so much of something, it simply goes for want. It is an excessive wealth. In other words, you have so much food stored in your barns that it rots before you get to eat uh, it, it. You have so many clothes in your closet that the moths eat them because you're not wearing them. And you, you, you have gold and silver. Now, of course, gold and silver don't tarnish, but it, it's a figure of speech or a hyperbole that you've got so much of it, it's just moldering away and it's not doing anyone any good. So it's that kind of opulent rich, that kind of excessive wealth, that kind of wealth for wealth's sake, and especially with the idea that there are those around you who don't have that. Notice what he says in the third verse, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Once again, James does not mince words. He is saying the same thing that Jesus is saying here. Woe to you who are rich in this manner. Woe to you who put all their emphasis on money because your money itself, your wealth itself, your focus on that idol is going to eat your flesh like fire. He's talking about condemnation. And there's also the idea in Scripture that the wealthy kind of got that way by oppressing the poor around them. Look in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So... That, that's, the, that's pretty much the way that Scripture looks at very wealthy, the, the, the extravagance of wealth. It, it is decidedly a pejorative uh, view, but once again, Abraham, Job, Joseph of Arimathea, all extremely wealthy men. So the real evil that is associated with wealth 
is when wealth becomes the focus of your life. When wealth becomes more important to you than Christ is. More important to you than the righteousness that is available through Christ. Now, the classic story of this, and we're going to get a lot of these stories out of the book of Luke because Luke really keys on this because he is interested in presenting you with the kingdom of God so that you end up there. That's what Luke wants out of all of these things. So he's not just wanting to ruin your day and make you feel bad. He wants you to end up in the kingdom of God. So he's going to make sure throughout this book that he tells you some of the pitfalls. And certainly money is that. You know the story of the so-called rich young ruler. Uh, That's kind of the classic story of someone who makes the decision for wealth rather than for Christ. You know that Jesus and his disciples are walking along and this man comes up and says, what do I need to do for eternal life? And, and Jesus says, just keep all the commandments. You know, you know the commandments. Now here's a really important response from the man because what we're going to do in a few minutes is we're going to take this to the spiritual side. But the man says this. He says, I've done this from my youth. I've kept all the commandments. Whoa, he obviously didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't hear the implicit inverse of all these commandments. He didn't hear that to have an idol of any kind is breaking the first and second commandment. But in his mind, he's rich with righteousness just as he is rich with money. And so our focus is, of course, going to be on the money. And so Jesus says it's real simple because Jesus knew his heart. And he also knew what his idol was. And so he said, all you got to do if you want to inherit eternal life is just sell everything you own. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And you know what the man's response was. We read this from Mark. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's the precise reason that Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, because it is so hard to see beyond it. The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, impossible for us, but possible for God. But the point is well taken, brothers and sisters, that this man put more emphasis on his own wealth and probably upon his own righteousness. And so he goes away sad. And I think that is an exercise that each and every one of us, Christian, non-Christian, needs to do. We need to kind of pull out the mirror, take a look at it, and ask ourselves, is there anything in your life, anything, That if you were presented with this same choose, if you were presented with the choice, is there anything in your life that would cause you to say, I simply can't give it up? If Jesus were to come to you today and say, I want you to go home, I want you to sell everything that you have, I want you to take your wife and your children, I want you to move to the wilds of the farthest stretch, South America, Africa, I want you to go into the jungle and build yourself a hut and start telling people about Jesus, what would you do? Would you find a reason not to? Would you say, I can't give this up? Well, brothers and sisters, if there's anything that you would say, I can't give it up, then this woe's for you. Jesus is saying, woe to you. Woe 
to those who are wealthy in the sense that whatever the wealth is, it becomes an idol and it stands between you and the Lord. You know what Jesus said in the book of Matthew again, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't do both. Because either you will do one of two things. You will either make yourself into something that you're not, or you will pull God down to something that he's not. Either way, you're worshiping an idol. Okay? Either way, you've put your trust into something other than God. Now, um, let's, uh, let, let's continue and look at the second part of it now. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. I just want you to notice the way that's phrased. You have received. That is present tense. In other words, the receiving that Jesus is talking about is something that is going on Right here and now. Now, I want you to notice just a little bit, and I know that you guys love grammar, but let me just kind of show you a little bit about the form of these, just so you notice as we go through the woes. As we went through the blessings, do you remember that there was sort of a, of a, of a model that each one kind of uh, followed? And in other words, um, blessed are you if you are poor in the here and now, because you will inherit as sons and daughters of God the riches of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you if you are hungry now because you will be satisfied. Blessed are you if you weep now because you will laugh. Blessed are you if you are hated now because you will get, you will get your reward in heaven. So in other words, there is a current state that is usually the negative state that things are not exactly the way you would like them to be now, but you're blessed in that state because of the eschatological not yet that is going to happen to you. Because of the state that you're in, because of the spiritual poverty that you're in, you're going to spend the eternity with God in heaven. Now, it's exactly the opposite in the way that Jesus presents the woes. It's that... You know, cursed are you because of your current state. Woe to you because of the state that you're in. Because your eschatological state, the state that you are going to, the place you are heading to, everything that you have given yourself to and sold your soul to have, everything you have exchanged for your for your eternity is going to be left behind and you're going to have nothing. You're going to leave this world exactly the way you came into it, but naked. I mean, you've got nothing that you're going to take with you except what you've done for the Lord. And so therefore everything gets left behind. And so there's, there's a reverse to the situation. Now, I know there, there's a degree. We, we don't want to get too clever with that. We can't make a hundred percent distinctions because we did talk about that there was even in the here and now much to rejoice for. There's blessing, the spiritual blessings we get now, but it doesn't compare to what we are going to have in heaven. Paul says, for no eye has seen or ear has heard, nor the heart of man. Imagine what God has in store for those who love him. We can't even imagine what the not yet is. And so there's also a, a sense that there is a, a, a negative in the here and now 
Not everyone who's rich is, is happy. In fact, some of the most miserable people on earth are the richest people on earth. Because one of the reasons you're miserable is because you're afraid somebody's going to steal it from you. And if you don't have anything to steal, you don't worry about it, right? Or if you've got a lot to steal, you, you worry about losing it every day. But, but the, it, in, in the majority of it, the main thing that, that Jesus is talking about is that you, you, you have your consolation now, right? The, the, you've exchanged your forever for the tawdry sparkling of these treasures now that will tarnish and fade, and you're going to have to leave them behind. Now, of course, we know that there's a, there's a powerful uh, um, story about this, and it's the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and you, you know these stories, but they fit right into um, what we're talking about. And, and let me just kind of read a little bit. We're going to actually re- return to this story several times because it is so indicative of what Jesus is talking about now. But there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his source. So we have the classic picture of the wicked wealthy or the unrighteous rich, the, the man who's got everything he needs. He's just simply opulent in his lifestyle, and here's this poor beggar that is uh, at his gate, probably passes him by every day, doesn't even throw him a crust of bread, doesn't care about him. He's keeping everything that he has for himself and putting his entire focus on that. Well, you know what happens. They both die. The man goes to hell, okay? It's not his wealth that sent him to hell. It's his lack of trust and faith in the redemptive um, power and plan of God. But nonetheless, he ends up in hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven, represented by the bosom of Abraham. And so, as the story goes, the rich man from hell, in anguish, cries out to Abraham, send Lazarus down here with just a little bit of water on his finger so that he can drop it on my tongue because I am in anguish in this flame. And you remember what Abraham said to him? Abraham said, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. In so many words, what Abraham is telling the rich man is very similar, almost exactly the same thing that Jesus is saying in this woe. You sold your soul for an idol. You sold your soul for something that passes. You sold your soul. You ignored the more important things of life. You ignored the warnings and all of the times you've heard the gospel and you've heard that it is impossible for you to save yourself. And you've ignored them and you have focused on the tawdry and trivial and passing things of this life. You sold your soul and now there's no going back. Because there's a gulf between us, and that is not going to be able to do it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice something. That when Jesus said, you have received your your consolation again, I tell you, that's the present indicative, active. That's happening now. That what you are selling your souls to now, what you are taking in as an idol now, is what you are exchanging, if you don't know Jesus, your eternity for. But at the same time... 
it is something that is of huge significance to the church. Now, once again, what I want to do, okay, that's sort of the analogy, right? And very poignant, a lot of lessons in that analogy. But I want to, I want to look at it from the wheel perspective, too. I want to look at it from, because it's the opposite of the blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, we know that that wheel, that that blessing was not just material, not just financial or or physical, that it was spiritual. In fact, the most important part of it is spiritual. Blessed are you if you are poor in spirit and a beggar, beggar that knows that you need help. And so the reverse of that, the reverse of that is going to be cursed are you if you are so arrogant that you think that you can save yourself, that you are rich in righteousness, and that a holy God is just simply going to wink at you and say, okay, come on into heaven because I am so filled with love and compassion. Jesus is warning you, the Son of God who came in human form is saying, woe to you. Because if you actually think that your spiritual richness is enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven, you are sorely mistaken. Because it can't, it won't. There is no salvation in idols of any kind. And so therefore we recognize that you're doing one of two things when you look at this. Either, and I said this before, either you're taking yourself and you're elevating yourself to a position of non-sinfulness. I'm not a sinful person. I don't have to worry. I'm going to be able to stand before God. He's going to accept me as I am. Or you're taking God and taking him out of his holiness and watering him down to something that he is not. Saying he will condone my sin. He will wink at my sin. He won't pay attention and he will not punish me for sin. You're either making an idol out of yourself or you're making an idol out of him. Either way, you're lost because an idol cannot and will not save you. So it's a poignant message as far as the overall plan of redemption that Jesus is bringing to the forefront here. But once again, brothers and sisters, I think that what we need to do is we need to recognize, sort of put it into that perspective. Let's just kind of spell it out. Jesus says that the great sin here, not rich, not riches, the great sin here is to put an idol before God, to put your faith in an idol, to put your trust in an idol, to... To, to think that an idol is going to save you. And whether that idol is actual money, and that's where your security is, or whether that idol is your own self-opinion of yourself, it is still an idol. And if you put your faith in an idol, then you will not see yourself as needy. You won't see yourself in need. And if you don't see yourself in need, you will not reach out as a beggar begging for the mercy of God. And if you don't reach out to God and beg for mercy, then you will not be forgiven. And if you are not forgiven, then you will not see the kingdom of God. It is just that simple. That's the curse, I think. The blessing of the poverty was that you knew that you were lost. That's the blessing, is that you know you're poor and you can't save yourself. The curse, the woe, is that you don't know it 
<laughs> you think either something's going to happen. Either you discount it and think it's going to go away or you think God is going to accept you as you are and you don't know the state that you're in. Well, Jesus tells us the state that you're in. He tells us because he's talking to a church and brothers and sisters, don't miss the point, that he, the fact that he's talking to a church when he says this. So church at Laodicea that felt that they were pretty self-sufficient. They, they pretty much got the world by the tail. They were more prosperous and they, they thought their righteousness was really good. And here's what Jesus has to say. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, when I say that about you, if you're not saved, when I say that about you, it's going to make you mad. And I know it. And I can't help it because I know it's going to make you mad. <laughs> Someone said that to me when I was, before I was saved, I'm going to get mad at you and say, you don't know me. You, you don't know anything about me. But spiritually speaking, according to what Scripture says, I do know you. Because Jesus just stated your state, your condition, where you are. You are wretched and poor and pitiable and blind and naked. And the saddest part about it is you don't know it. You don't realize it. You think that, that everything is just fine. And that's why I beg of you. That's why there's compassion in this. That's why there is such a, a, a plea, a passionate plea that you would please listen to the words of Jesus and recognize that you are in a state of great danger when you put your trust in riches. But I also want you to remember this. When Jesus says these words, he's talking to a vast crowd. And that's the reason I took you back to the 20th verse. I want you to remember that in that crowd are the lost that I've just referenced. I mean, in the apostles, there's Judas. In the disciples, there's a whole bunch that are going to leave him. In the crowd, there are people that are just there, curiosity seekers or they're thrill seekers looking for a miracle. There's even Pharisees and Sadducees there that hate Jesus. And those he has just warned in the most poignant warning as I have warned you. But remember what he said, that his gaze was fixed upon his disciples. He's got 11 apostles there. He's got disciples that are going to follow and be the foundations of the church. He's got people who are going to be saved. He even has people amongst the antagonists, the Pharisees, who are going to come to know him. He's going to call people from every single aspect of that. And he says to them, woe to you, rich for you have received your consolation. So there's a meaning here, brothers and sisters, not just for the unsaved. There's a powerful meaning for the church. When did the church begin to become so fixated on money? Let's talk about the material aspect first. When did the church become so fixated on money and forgot what Jesus says here? Woe to you if you're rich. I mean, just think about medieval Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, and the massive hordes of wealth that they connected. I mean, if you've been to the Vatican, all you have to do is go to the museum. And even today, I could not even begin to put a price tag on even one room of the valuable art objects that they have there. Wealthy beyond the, the dreams of avarice. Or today, when... 
churches are so focused on money and we have a a heresy that's so prevalent out there. One of the worst exports of this Western culture is the health and wealth gospel, the so-called prosperity gospel, the name it, claim it gospel, the word of faith gospel. I use the word gospel with a lower G because it doesn't represent the gospel at all. But there's this whole focus on money, you know? And then there's these people, I'll, I'll call them out, people like Kenneth Copeland and, and Benny Hinn and Cephalo Dollar and Stephen Furtick and all these guys that are making millions upon millions upon millions of dollars out of calling themselves Christians because they, are, they, they have created these massive schemes. But brother and sister, here's the problem. The problem is that wealth idolatry has crept into the church. And is alive and well because you don't get guys like this. You don't get the... They would be laughed out of town unless there were hundreds of thousands of people who are willing to invest in their Ponzi schemes. It's the people. And and, you know a Ponzi scheme, it's all about greed. It's all about getting more. Shovel to God with a big shovel and he'll shovel back with a bigger shovel. That's greed. That's That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Woe to the church. If money becomes the object, woe to the church if, 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 if you start letting the love of money and the focus of money sneak into the church. But you know what bothers me probably even more than that? And I'll tell you, I've got a dilemma because I don't even know what to call us anymore. I mean, what do you call us? Can't use the word evangelical. That's been so stripped of meaning. Hard to even call us reform because reform doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore. We can call ourselves the church militant, which we are. We can call ourselves the invisible church, which is a church God knows. Maybe the serious church. <laughs> Maybe the church that really wants to be a disciple and takes the Bible seriously and seizes at the infallible, inerrant word of God. Okay, Maybe that church is the church that really bothers me. Because we see wealth idolatry within that church as well. I was part of a church earlier in my Christian walk where virtually every single one of the elders and deacons was somebody who was successful in the world. They were spiritual dwarfs. I'm sorry to say that, but some of them were just absolutely spiritually, but they were successful in the world. And so therefore, because they're successful in the world, it's just assumed that they're going to be successful in guiding the church in the right directions. You go to Christian schools, you're going to find people who are successful in the world sitting on their boards rather than the spiritually focused and dedicated. So how is it possible that we forget that and we put such a premium on money within the church? Why is it that we do things for ourselves, that we create programs and projects for ourselves, and we forget about the Lazaruses that are at our gate an hour and a half away in a place like Haiti who don't have any food, who don't have any place to live, and they don't have any clothes, and they don't own a Bible, and yet we drive by them every day and ignore them as if they're not there because there's so much that we need. But I think what really bothers me, it bothers me in the church, it bothers me here, People's attitude towards giving. Yeah, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to turn this into a stewardship sermon. Should, but I'm not. But it's abysmal statistics when you look at the giving of the church. I think like 20% of the church tithes, maybe less than that. More than 50% of the church gives nothing at all. There are people here that give nothing at all. 
which means you're a taker, which means that you come here every week or you come here when you come here and you take. And you're not giving anything back. And, the, and, and you're robbing from the Lord. And when did that become an acceptable practice within the church of Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. I have seen people in Haiti line up to give their tithes when they have nothing and support that church on their own with no outside help. Yet here in the richest country in the world, for some reason, our money is so important to us, we just cannot part with it. It's become an idol, folks. That is when wealth becomes an idol, and that's when it becomes a curse and an impediment to you and an impediment to your spiritual growth. But once again, that's just the surface view of this. That's the analogy. The real danger. You see, idolatry in and of itself is a spiritual problem. It's not one that comes from anything external. It is a spiritual problem because it is you putting something in between you and God. It is you giving your heart to, your energy, your imagination, your aspirations to something else other than God. It is you trusting in something other than God. Or maybe giving lip service to God. But you've created an idol and that's a spiritual problem. That's not a financial problem. That is not an emotional problem. That is not a relational problem. It is a spiritual problem that you simply don't understand the relationship that God has called you to when he saved you. So I have a real simple solution. If, I feel, if you feel like we're just kind of dropping off the edge here, it's because I'm only about a third of the way through with my sermon. But I'm going to cut it here. We've got at least another week, maybe two, on this. But it's a very simple solution. And we can just go back to that, that story of the so-called rich young ruler. It, it, Jesus just kind of spells it out for us. What do we do? How do we deal with this problem? How do we escape the woe that Jesus has so clearly laid upon both unbelievers and believers? So it's real simple. Repent. That's the first thing you do. Whether you're unsaved, whether you're a believer coming out of darkness, whether you're a new believer, where you're an old believer, you drop on your face and you repent in sackcloth and ashes before the Lord, and then you get rid of your idol. Okay? You throw it away. You get rid of it. You, you, you stop serving the idol. And then thirdly, follow Jesus. It's just that simple. Repent. Get rid of the idol. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know that um, eh, these seem like harsh words. But they're really not. We thank you that Jesus cared enough about us to give us these woes. That he cared enough about the lost to point out some of the things that they put their faith in, to point out the dangers of thinking they are rich in righteousness, to point out the, 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 the devastating impact that an idol like wealth of any kind can have on us. He cared about us. He loved us. He gave it to us with compassion in his heart. And I pray that that compassion has come through in some way this morning. Because this is, this is a tragedy. It is a tragedy within the church. It is a tragedy outside of the church. When we lose our focus in you and our lose our, our desire to serve you and love you and to follow you. And we replace it with some kind of a semblance 
of an idol. Pray that you would help us all repent, get rid of those idols, and then follow Jesus, whose name we pray.